0: The full name is It means our foods, where we plant things. So it's more than just about planting seeds in the ground, it's about planting these ideas in our community, about reclaiming who we are, mm-hmm. reclaiming our relationships with our foods and our relationships with each other.
1: Dinoy Maganatug. Greetings, relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I'm your host and gardener. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod, a podcast aimed at celebrating the diversity and beauty of native seeds, soils, and indigenous foods. Good morning, Becky. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining the Native Seed Pod, and we're in our third season of recording Native American Seed keepers, farmers, hunters, gatherers, anyone involved with the Native Food Movement. So it's been really fun. And we've heard just amazing things about you. And I've been really happy to learn more about your incredible work and your farm and all the good things that you're doing for the people and the seeds. So if you don't mind, first, please just introducing yourself in whatever way you do. That would be wonderful.
0: Okay, So in English, what I just said is, "Greetings, everybody. My name is Ganyatege, which means snow scattered here and there, trying to protect the land. My English name is Becky Webster." I'm Wolf Clan, I'm Oneida, and I grew up near Duck Creek that runs through the Oneida Reservation. Mm,
1: Beautiful. Thank you. Chi miigwech. Thank you for introducing yourself in such a lovely, traditional way. It's great to hear your language and hear your traditional name. That's a beautiful name. Well, wonderful. I'm curious about, you know, you have an amazing background as an educator, as a tribal attorney, and now dedicating your work to seed keeping and the importance of Native American agriculture. I loved some of your videos on, you have your own YouTube channel. Great work there. So um, amongst your many careers and professional hats, I'm just curious what led you to becoming a seed keeper, given all of these diverse interests as an educator and defender of your people as an attorney. I'm just very interested in that link.
0: I'm not quite sure entirely. I think it's maybe I just haven't figured out what I want to be when I grow up yet. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the heart of all of My life's work so far to this point has been about the Oneida people and our rights as individuals and our ability to reclaim what has been taken away from us. And so that has taken many shapes and forms over the years. Initially, I was primarily the land attorney for the Oneida Nation, working on land reclamation, reacquiring stolen land, having that land taken back into its trust status, having disputes heard about the land and intergovernmental relationships about how we go about living in this shared space with our neighbors. And I think then it transitioned into academia because I really wanted to find a different way to go about doing these things, helping the United people and helping people across Indian country as a whole. And there were a whole lot of negative things going on in our community with one particular local government that really pushed me to want to try to figure out a different way to go about things. And during that time also, I had begun farming with a group of individuals in our community. There's about 10 Oneida families that we decided to form a co-op together. So all of this was moving at the same time, a career change and the emergence of our co-op. And then shortly after that, we we liked it so much. Um, our family purchased 10 acres of, vacant land on the reservation. And we decided to build a home and build a farmstead here. So it kind of all moved rather quickly at the same time, all of these different moving parts. And and I couldn't be happier with the changes that we've made.
1: Wonderful, yes. Well, it happened all organically. And like you said, it's all connected and all related um, from our indigenous worldviews. And you can't have Uh, land without growing food or gathering food, and you can't have seeds without having land to grow the food in. So it all goes together. And I was reflecting on that, too, thinking of the work. I know you're probably very familiar much more than I am with the NAGPRA law, the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and how so many of the tribes are working so hard to repatriate their ancestors and and they need land to rebury them, to reinter them. And interestingly, you know, there's such a similarity with the seed rematriation movement of returning these seeds out of these collections and vaults and archives and basements of universities and museums. And again, you need land and you need the people, the nations to bring those seeds back home so they can grow and grow. And create new life. So I'm just curious if you see some connection between the, the repatriation movement as we've, as we've known it historically and then the, the seed rematriation movement and any similarities or difference you see in those two activities.
0: Yeah, I think there's definitely a connection between those two movements and I think that's where essentially the word rematriation comes from is a spin on that idea of repatriating items, either individuals, our, our ancestors, or you know some of the ceremonial objects that are still held by our museums to this day. And especially for Oneida people, we have our Oneida tribal wampum belt that's still held by Chicago. The problem though, isn't necessarily always the fault of the museum, but sometimes they don't know who to give it back to. So for the Oneida people, we have just like all the other tribes, we have a pretty traumatic history And ours is one of removal. So we were um, forcibly removed from what is now New York State to what would later become Wisconsin in the early 1800s. And we've always been wondering too, what seeds did we take with us? Because we knew that we were going to have to continue our agricultural way of life in our new homeland. And what seeds did we leave behind? So those are all questions that we have And we're trying to reconnect with some of those seeds because when we did come here, we were disconnected from the rest of our Haudenosaunee relatives out east. We really didn't have them as close by. Sure, there were lots of people that went back and forth, but we were really isolated here, um, formed new friends with our other indigenous neighbors here in what would become Wisconsin. But yeah, it's about returning our relatives to us. So it's our seeds aren't just a thing. They're not something that you can just you know, go to the garden center and pick up and buy. Yeah, you can, but not our heirloom indigenous seeds. Those are a different story. They have been with us. Our stories tell us since creation. So we have a unique relationship with them as our relatives, the same as, you know, sisters, aunts, grandmothers, all of these relatives that we see are our seeds. So when we plant them and we care for them, we're helping them grow and helping them in their successive generations as our seed relatives.
1: Absolutely. Yes. It's such an important healing process, too, to be able to reconnect with some of these ancestral seeds that sustained our ancestors for thousands of years and to return them to our warm hands and to the warm earth and then to feast them again. There's really a community uh, healing process that happens. And at the Cultural Conservancy, we were grateful to be gifted some of your beautiful corn. Here's (laughs) this one little cob from the Bray family who we did a a podcast show with about the green corn ceremony from Seneca, Cattaraugus. And they came out to California and gifted us the Oneo or the Tuscarora or Oneida or um, the Haudenosaunee Iroquois white corn and we've been very honored to be the keepers of that seed now for gosh let's see I think eight eight seasons eight seasons so it's adapted really well to our drier hotter maybe not hotter but our drier environment in northern California And last year, I think, was its best year yet. It just grew so beautifully and big and perfect and gorgeous. So we are connected to you through some of that. So tell us a little bit about the corn varieties you grow, or do you primarily grow the the white corn?
0: Um, Actually, we don't really grow. You can see, but uh, I'm sure that in the audio version, you won't be able to see it, but I do have lots of corn in my office and throughout our home, different varieties that we have grown here on the farmstead. We haven't grown the Tuscarora white corn, which is, I would say, probably the most common corn grown throughout the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. But we have grown Oneida white corn, which is a different but closely related variety. There's shorter cobs, there's more cobs per stock, and it's a shorter growing season. So we've grown that corn. We This year, we're focusing on a Mohawk red flower corn, It's this beautiful red cobs with this, just a really nice tint, especially to the the husks. And I'm especially Mm. looking forward to making dolls out of those husks after this fall. Yeah, we, I mean, we have grown several different varieties. The thing with corn though, is you have to be careful about timing because it could possibly cross-pollinate. So we wanted to make sure that we keep our strains pure. So like we'll grow maybe a 90-day corn alongside of a 125-day corn because they will pollinate and tassel at different times. So that's okay to do that. One of the main focuses that we have on our farmstead is actually the beans. So Mm. they are a whole lot more forgiving. You need to have space between them and possibly we put a lot of clover between the bean varieties to distract the bees just in case. We get some overzealous bees that might accidentally cross-pollinate the beans. And then, of course, we have the squash. We do primarily three sisters gardening here. So this year we have over 200 mounds with the three sisters growing in them. And we um, also have a high tunnel this year that we just built through a grant from the USDA which was an amazing opportunity because financially we wouldn't have been able to put up a high tunnel without that assistance. So we have a 30 by 90 high tunnel out in the behind our in the back part of our property where we have I think there's like 42 mounds we put in there. And then we have some strawberries in there and other bean trellises in there, too. And the corn Mm. is just really loving the high tunnel. So they're Uh. really flourishing in there.
1: Fantastic. So for our readers who may not know what a high tunnel is, do you want to share a little bit more what that looks like and what its purpose is?
0: Sure. It's a structure. I'm trying to think it's about 16 feet tall in the center and it's a a long structure there. It's made out of steel ribs, so to speak. And then we have a plastic covering over the top of it. And each of the walls are finished off. Like one side has plastic, but the front side because we're just a little bit extra here on our farmstead, we have siding to match the house. So it's got a door and it has some, you know, open, wide open barn doors to get machinery in and out if we need to. And then along the sides, we um, have sides that roll up and down like a car window. So the whole entire side can come up and down in case we need to air it out to get you know, if it's too hot in there and also the summer when the temperature started to increase, we put a shade cloth over the whole top mm. to make sure the, our, our plants in there didn't get too hot. So the purpose of it is really twofold. The first off is we're having a really difficult time with climate change and our changing seasons and also the different varieties and knowing of when to plant because it's, we try to plant with our moon cycles, but some of the other things that we need, like when the fish run to put the fish in the mounds don't always happen anymore when they're supposed to. So by putting things in a high tunnel, we can do everything a month earlier and we can have it in there a month later. So like one of the seeds that was rematriated to us from Seed Savers Exchange is 125 day corn it's called Iroquois tooth corn. We wouldn't normally be able to plant that kind of corn in our yard because our growing season is just a bit too short for that. And then the other thing is we can control things in there a whole lot better. You know, if there's a big storm, roll up the sides, button it up, our corn is not going to fall over in those storms. And if there's too much rain, the rain doesn't get in there, If it's too dry, we can water the plants. So we are watering quite frequently in there, but it's about being able to control that environment to be able to grow out, especially some of the seeds that we have less of and and they're maybe more scarce so that we can grow them out and then be able to share them with the community.
1: Mm, wonderful. So it really extends your growing season and you have more climate control given how unpredictable the weather is now with these freak storms and heat waves and drought. And yeah, that's excellent. And that's wonderful. You got a USDA grant to do it. And you said it was 30 by 90. So yes. it's pretty, it's a big tunnel. Yes. Yeah, it's a big high tunnel. And you were able to put mounds in there as well. And the corn grows up to the almost to the roof probably.
0: Well, that's a fun. So we have the two varieties in there. One's a 90 day and the other one is 125 days. So the 90 day started to tassel when it was shorter than me. And then it you know the corn will keep growing so those tassels are just brushing the top of the high tunnel Mm. the 125 day corn hasn't tasseled yet and it is already much taller than me so (laughs) I guess we will all stay tuned to see what happens in there what happens yeah
1: (laughs) oh that sounds like a great a great tool and a great way to extend the growing season that's fantastic so those are the different corn varieties and you said you do a number of bean varieties including I'm sure a lot of climbers and any bush beans, standalone beans.
0: Yep, we, we have bush beans, we have some mm-hmm. half runners, and then we have mm-hmm. some very vigorous pole beans. So we got all kinds and everything in between here. And they're all Haudenosaunee varieties. Most of them have either been rematriated from. Seed Savers Exchange or they, we obtained them in trades from people out east. We are growing five bean varieties that have been growing in our community since we relocated here to Wisconsin. So those five varieties are very important to our community and I'm, I'm really looking forward to being able to grow those out and again like all of our seeds to be able to share them with the community.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit about some of those five beans or one that you're particularly fond of, either for eating or for growing?
0: Well, the only one of the varieties, and I've been growing that one for about seven years, I've tasted, and that's our bear bean. So that's a pretty common bean. There's another name for it, and but some people say that that's actually a different bean. So there's a bit of controversy there, but it's the scarlet red runner bean, the very vigorous pulled bean with some really beautiful red, shockingly Gorgeous. red flowers. Yeah. Yes,
1: yes. And the beans are like little gems, purples and blacks,
0: yes. all kind of marbled together. yeah, yes. Yeah, so that's one of the varieties that we've been growing here in Oneida, Wisconsin since we moved here. And the other one the other four, unfortunately, two of them, we lost their names to them. one of the 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 last primary grower of them who took care of them in our community had passed away. And his grandchildren and children, don't necessarily know what those names are anymore. So we're we're working with them, taking pictures of them as they grow. And we have some of my seed mentors out east that we're gonna be sending pictures to to see if there's a connection and what their story is because of that disconnect from growing them here in Oneida, Wisconsin for so long. They might have you know very similar beans because a lot of communities grow the same bean under a different name. That's so right. there might be a different story of them that we'll be able to find out so even though a lot of our information is lost if you listen closely enough those seeds and those plants will guide you to the answers
1: hmm. Beautiful. Thank you. So we covered the corns, the beans, and then you do a, a Hubbard squash, you are saying.
0: Yeah. So yeah. we do, we try to only grow one from each family. So this year we're growing a pepo and then a maxima, which is the Hubbard squash. And it's an Oneida Hubbard squash, squash, which was also rematriated. This one was from, from a friend, Jessica Greendeer, Dream of Wild Health, a couple years ago, so this is our second year growing the Oneida Hubbard squash here on our property. And we've been able to share a lot of squash last year. And this year, it looks like the squash is going to be even better this year. So we're going to have a whole mm. lot of squash on our hands. Mm. The other squash that we're growing is a Menominee squash. And part of our story here, and actually part of our own family story is we've, we have we have Menominee people in our family. And also this territory was originally Menominee territory. And when we came here to Wisconsin, we had negotiated with the Menominee and the Ho-Chung people to be able to share this space with them because of what was happening to us out East. And I think it's just a, a really nice tribute to the people and our family, to be able to also be growing that Menominee squash here.
1: Mm -hmm. And it shows the good intertribal relations, you know, that our ancestors negotiated those kind of treaties and agreements. And then, of course, through intermarriage and trade, lots of partnerships and collaborations. So that's wonderful. You're growing out that squash. Yeah, I was gifted some Mandan banquet squash last year, and I'm very excited this year. We're going to grow them for the first time. My people are from north. Dakota, Ojibwe or Chippewa from up north, but also have lots of Mandan friends and relatives in North Dakota. So really excited to see how that squash does too. Squasher, I I can't say I have a favorite out of the three sisters. They're all great, (laughs) but I'm a squash lover. I'll say that. I love to eat different varieties of squash. What are some of your favorite three sisters dishes or recipes? Do you like to do them separately or put them together? Just curious about some traditional O Nida three sisters cooking.
0: Well, I the my favorite ones actually exclude the squash, so <laughs> and those are primarily our corn soup, which is a, yeah. a staple in our community, which has the corn, beans, and then some type of a protein, which is Has been pork hocks and and in more recent times, other times it's turkey or venison in them. Mm. And and I think it tastes extra great when it's smoked meat. So that's one of my favorite dishes. And the other one is our ganastohal, which is cornbread, which is made with our corn and our beans and it's uh, boiled bread. And I think that that's one of my favorites. But as far as the dishes go, I'm not sure if it's an Oneida recipe, but I do know it's a Haudenosaunee recipe. It's the Three Sisters Corn Soup, which has mm. all of them in there with the addition of some um, other things that we've had um, introduced, like tomatoes and um, parsnips and carrots. So that's mm. a really hearty soup that really fills you up, which is can su- be surprising if it's just vegetables, but it's a really great soup. And I love the taste of it.
1: Yes, that sounds delicious. You're going to make me hungry here. Anyway, thank you for that about the three sisters. And that's your primary farming method and different varieties that you grow at your beautiful Uguacua. Did I say it Pretty close. Uguacua. Oonk Oom-qua-qua. Yeah, so tell yeah. us a little bit about, I'm so excited to learn about your farm and your homestead there and raising your family there and your educational programs were fantastic. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the origins of this farm and maybe some of the joys and challenges of being a homesteader, a modern day homesteader. Well,
0: I don't know if we have enough time for all the challenges, <laughs> but. <laughs> uh, so we had this this wild idea. So I, I was a, an attorney for my tribe. And my husband was the records director for the tribe. We both had very busy. Thankfully, my parents lived with us. So that was a huge help with our two daughters as they were growing up. But eventually we just wanted to really change pace and change our plans and what we were doing, a different trajectory. I I went back to school, earned my PhD. I was teaching adjunct at universities just to get some experience and hopefully move for a career shift. There was an opening at the University of Minnesota Duluth to teach in their graduate and undergraduate courses in their American Indian Studies Department for tribal administration and governance. And I sent my stuff in. They said, you're perfect. I got hired and it was pretty great. Soon after that, wow. we we bought the 10 acres. We knew that we wanted to share a lot of this information. Everything that we've been gathering about our foods, our seed saving, our cooking, our um, implements that we're using to cook our foods, all of that, even the arts and crafts things like corn husk dolls and things like that. We wanted to be able to share what we've learned with the community. And so my husband also left his job. So now he homeschools our daughters and we're all just kind of hanging out here on our property. So as we were explaining what our vision for this property was to be another place in our community, for people to come to learn about our foods and to have access to more varieties of our indigenous seeds, our Haudenosaunee, and especially our Oneida seeds. We went to a faith keeper and told him of our plans. And then he came back with the name for our property. The full name is Toslu. It means our foods, where we plant things. Mm. So it's more than just about planting um, seeds in the ground. It's about planting these ideas in our community about reclaiming who we are, reclaiming our relationships with our foods and our relationships with each other. So that was the idea. And actually, so we're having a pretty busy day today in general because we're getting ready for our first big event. It's not very big, but considering we're in the midst still of the tail end hopefully of COVID, hopefully. we're having an event at at the farmstead where there's a it's going to be about 30 people and we're going to be cooking in our traditional pottery using mm. our traditional corn pounders to uh, grind our corn using our traditional black ash corn washing baskets to hold the corn using our ash baskets to winnow the corn so we're going to be doing all of that and also one of my friends is also a potter and she's the one that made the pottery that we're going to be cooking mm. in but she's also going to be teaching the people that attend and everyone's going to be making their own pottery as well that will she'll eventually take back and and clay fire so they can cook at home, over the fire, the way that we had originally been cooking our foods. So mm. not to say that there's anything wrong with cooking in your, your you know, different implements that you have, but I think it's also important to understand our traditional ways of cooking, too, and the reasons for that.
1: Oh, that sounds so fun. I wish I could go. That sounds like a great gathering. And I love how, like you said... I think for everybody, but for indigenous farmers and seed keepers, it's about the seeds, of course, and the plants and the water. But it's really about, like you said, those food ways, you know, the stories of the seeds, the implements, the way we cook them and what we use for them. You had mentioned the clay or the pottery, which is fantastic. And then you mentioned something else about the, the, maybe the sticks or the pounders.
0: Yeah, corn pounder, that's a lot. That's hollowed out a bit in the middle And then there's, it's like a mortar and pestle But just Mm -hmm. really big
1: And Mm -hmm. they have a
0: wood pestle And then you can either, you know, hull the corn a bit And then grind that up Or you can toast the corn and grind that up So those different flour products that come out of there Have different purposes One would be, you know, mush, kind of like grits Mm -hmm. And the other one would be more to bake with Like to make our cornbread It's predominantly for the cornbread that that one would be for
1: yeah, nice. And what is that wood made out of? Is it ash or something else? I am not entirely sure. Not sure. So y- you'll find a... out
0: today. <laughs> well, we <laughs> have we have one of the corn pounders, and I'm I, I had forgot, and I'm embarrassed that I, you know, there's so much to learn, and there's oh. so much to remember. And there's um, so
1: many woods around the <laughs> yeah. Great Lakes and so many trees. Yeah, so, yes. So, but I love that tying it back to, you know, the earth with the pottery and the forest with the, the pounders and, you know, again, connecting it to everything in the yeah. in the whole environment. Wonderful. So I think
0: it's important too to keep in mind that with our seeds, a lot, there's a lot of focus on the seed itself. But those seeds, as our relatives, have a responsibility to us and we have a responsibility to them. So, I think you know, it's great that we collect these seeds, but it's important that we plant them and then we let them grow. And that it's not just saving the seeds and continuously saving them, which we had been in in that mode because they they were scarce. And every time we would get some seeds, we would hand them out. So I think two years ago was really the first time that we had grown them in such an abundance that we were finally able to eat them. And that Aww. was a really great experience. So Tomorrow, we're having our chef, Arlie Dockstater who's going to be cooking in the pots for us. Most of everything that he's cooking is coming from our gardens. So that's a mm. really great place to be, to have such an abundance that we're going to be able to feed all 30 people from mm. just a portion of what we have grown here on the farmstead. So that's pretty exciting.
1: Oh, that's wonderful. Say hi to Chef Arley for me. <laughs> I haven't seen him in years, but we've seen each other at slow food gatherings and when they had the Native American Culinary Arts Gatherings in Arizona with all the different Native chefs, I was one of their gophers and went <laughs> did, did different jobs for the chefs, and he was one of them. That was so much fun. Wow, well, that should be a great feast. And you mentioned that seed-keeping is more than just you know holding the seed and and keeping the seed it's telling the story of the seed and you know what else does it involve what are some of the legal implications especially with your law degree i know that what i hear from different native communities is they're really worried about protecting the sanctity of the seed from genetic modification privatization and just curious about you know some of the threats or concerns that you see to the seeds that we need to be wary of and and vigilant with.
0: Yeah. So um, at the outset, I I didn't fully introduce myself. I guess I am I am a recovering attorney. <laughs> so <laughs> so I do try. Good to for st- you. <laughs> <laughs> I do try to stay away from some of the legal implications, but it's really hard not to get my gears spinning when you hear about the audacity of some seed company that's going to try to own and patent seeds that we have been growing since our stories tell us the time of creation, since the time before there were even human beings here. So I think that that really hits a nerve to think that that could happen. One of the things that we directly feel the impacts here throughout the reservation is that when we grow our corn, we need to be very careful where we grow it, because of all these GMO corn fields are just around us Mm -hmm. and we that corn pollen can really drift for miles so we need to be extra careful when we go to select for seed if there's any signs of cross-pollination then we'll we'll save that cob for you know soup or flour, but we Mm -hmm. won't save those seeds to plant in subsequent years. So there's a lot of issues and, and we don't really have control over what the neighbors are doing yet at this point in time. I'm hoping we'll get to a point where we can recognize the dangers of GMO and just the thought of that itself, too, is that somebody's going to do that to our mm. relatives. I mm. think it it makes the seed seem like a thing and not our relative. I, I can't yes. think of any other words to put right. it. Than, a living being. Yes. That, that has its own inherent rights too to not be manipulated in such a way that is really culturally inappropriate. Mm-hmm. So I think there's all of these dangers around us. And even the idea of putting it out there about what varieties we have in their stories, there's always a danger that that's going to fall into the wrong hands. But at the same time, I think our people are especially thirsty for that information. They want to know more about those seeds because like me, they didn't grow up knowing about them because of assimilation, colonization, Mm -hmm. and removal. All of these things happened to us and we had that relationship with so many things, our culture, our language, our history, our seeds. That relationship had been severed. So now we're trying to reconnect, but we're trying to do so in a way that somebody else isn't going to come back and take advantage of us. So it's a really tricky line to be able to walk. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamil Pius Trust. To contribute to our polyculture and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org.
1: It truly is a balancing act because as Rowan White always says, you know, seeds teach us about generosity, right? The the seeds are so generous when they, they just, proliferate and, and spread and share widely, but we know that that has been abused or exploited with with our relatives' generosity at times. So it's a balancing act, like you said, to share, be generous, educate, but also to always be protective of those traditions in those ways. Yeah, it is a balancing act. Well, thanks for your generosity and sharing so much through your work and your farm and your teachings. And you've, We spoke a little bit about land stewardship, and you said, let me, we don't have enough time in the day to talk about some of the challenge. If you don't mind just sharing a few of those challenges, maybe it's a water or well. I'm also curious because the Cultural Conservancy just acquired an eight-acre farm, so very similar in size to yours, and we've been in a process of cleaning it up, doing water testing, fixing up the old farmhouse, doing those kinds of things, removing invasive exotic species that take have taken over certain areas, clearing out the little waterways. So I'm just curious to hear about some of your like larger land stewardship activities that is obviously integrated with the farming and the, the seed keeping.
0: So I think from our perspective on our farmstead, one of the biggest hurdles is access to capital mm. because we don't sell any of our seeds or any of our produce. We only trade for all of it. And that's a whole nother discussion about the, the dollar value that you would put on something and also the value that people would be able to just say, you know, it's X dollars, but we don't operate on that type of a system. So when we dedicate so much of our time to growing these foods, there isn't anything that's coming back in a monetary way to be able to help us like build a barn or buy a tractor or any of these other things. So we've been really fortunate to um, be able to advantage of some grants that are out there that have helped us. And in another situation, we actually had to refinance our home and take money out of our 401k to be able to build a barn, which is a, essentially a garage that actually was put on hold <laughs> because of the staggering lumber prices right now. I'm really hoping oh. they come down soon. But mm. I think it's difficult to be able to be a, a farmer, even on a smaller scale like we are, when we, don't, we still have a lot of times, we don't know what we're doing. We're really just winging it. We're just doing it. That's right. It's hard to do that when we don't have, you know, generations of experience and all of that ingrained knowledge to be able to know what to do. Um, And especially when we're not conventionally farming either. So even if we had access to people with information and knowledge, which we do, that doesn't always translate to the traditional ways of farming that we're trying to engage in. So it's it's access to capital is is huge and also that knowledge. And that's why we're trying so hard to be able to share what we learn with people. And boy do we learn a lot every single year. We think we I think we're finally getting it and then no, we have all kinds of stuff to learn, you know. Mm. And there's just and the more you learn the more you realize you have to learn yet. So I think this is going to be you know, hopefully for many more years, a, a, a journey to get to know our seeds better, to get to know our foods better, and to be able to share that with people.
1: Thank you so much for sharing that. That is a a resounding concern of so many small farmers, right? Native and non, just access to capital, but especially Native farmers. And yeah, so I, I really resonate, hear you with that one, and really commend you on your trade network. And that was, I guess, like you said, that's a whole other question about not entering the market economy, right? That's yes. a big decision, but to maintain a very traditional trade economy or traditional Indigenous economy as opposed to the market economy. So that's going to create great opportunities, but also great challenges. And I know you've been involved with the Indigenous Seedkeepers Network and the Upper Midwest, Wisconsin Seedkeeping. I with Dan Cornelius and others. And just the strength of networks is so important for, I think, Indigenous people the, the indigenous food movement and if you could speak a little bit about some of the benefits and some of the stories of the network that have really strengthened you and your farm
0: I think well it might not be directly related to the seeds but that network has really connected us with a whole lot of seed mentors and people to call upon if we're having issues like oh my gosh my beans are doing this help You know, just things that we we don't really know what to do sometimes. So I think that network of sharing experiences, like this year we're growing sunchokes for the first time. Mm. I don't know what to expect with them and Mm -hmm. what are they supposed to look like? What do you Mm -hmm. do? When do you harvest them? And, so, and, and a lot of times too, there's different teachings that go with different plants that you're just not going to be able to Google it and find out. That's so right. That's been an amazing opportunity to be able to hear the stories, to be able to network with all of those different seed, so keep talking about the best ways, the most, the ways that are the most effective to save our seeds, to ensure that they will be able to prosper in the next generations. All of that stuff has been really just so valuable to be able to learn all of that and gather all of that information as we have our meetings and as we have our discussions, both at the meetings and aside from the meetings. So it's been really helpful in our journey to be able to learn more.
1: Mm hmm. Absolutely. And I know there's a big gathering coming up in September, I think, in in your area, right? Wisconsin. Yes. And,
0: and yeah. Yep. Keweenaw Bay Indian Community is going to be hosting the Food Sovereignty Symposium, I believe. Yes. Um, we're actually having a couple of sessions there. So one of the sessions will be with our white corn co-op, Ohelagu. And we'll be at that time, if the timing is right, we'll be able to bring a truckload of our green corn up. And we're going to have a a corn roasting event there. And I think green corn is especially important for our community and potentially other communities because we're just really learning about it. So there's a few, you know, there's few people in our community that are know about it, but we're so afraid of picking the corn at that stage because we didn't know what we were doing as with as is the common thread here. Right. Mm -hmm. We we weren't sure what we were doing. And we were always worried that we wouldn't have enough corn if we didn't let it sit out in the field to dry. So it actually happened, I think, two years ago where we had planted a little bit later and we were not sure if our corn would fully mature. So we ended up picking, you know, almost an acre of just green corn. And our, you know, we said, let's just do it. And it was amazing. It was so delicious. We were roasting it as a community, you know, taking it off the cob mm. as a community and, you know, eating it right there, right, as they're pulling it off the, the, the grills and stuff. So I think it's important to understand, too, that our corn that we ate wasn't just always the like the cob that you had showed me at that flowered, matured stage, that you can eat it at that earlier stage. So that's one of the um, things that we'll be doing there and sharing that with people And the other one is actually a friend of mine who's also a farmsteader here on the reservation. We're going to be talking about indigenous seed exchange and indigenous bartering. So we have Mm. two of our videos from our YouTube channel that we're going to show and we're going to host a seed exchange and barter market event. So that's going to be really exciting.
1: Oh, that's fantastic. Tell us a little bit about, I saw you had a beautiful video about seed etiquette. And, you know, we often talk about protocols from in indigenous worldviews, but I love that you called it etiquette, right? Because everyone could relate to that. And it's almost a little bit of a European, you know, I think of like English cutlery or something, right? (laughs) But I like that you're approaching it and sharing that widely. So if you could say just a little bit about the purpose of that video, about, you know, etiquette in approaching these these really sacred ancestors are not just, you know, dead little things, and also how the challenges and opportunities of partnering with non-Native allies like Seed Keepers Exchange and others, I often get asked, I'm sure you do too, by non-Native folks who say, wow, I'm really inspired by the seed rematriation movement. How can I contribute? What can I do as a white ally to support the seed rematriation movement? And I'd love to hear your answer to that.
0: Yeah, so as far as the, I'll take the allies one first is I do have, you know, a a number of non-Indian allies who are just really great supporters of everything that it is that we do. They even help us make further connections with other people. And those people that I've built relationships with over time, I trust them with our seeds. I trust that they aren't going to go grow them out and then you know, sell them to Monsanto or something like that. So I know that they're in good hands. And I know that the seed doesn't necessarily, it only has to be grown by those particular people. Because if you think about what happened before European contact, we had sophisticated trade networks throughout North and South America. Our seeds traveled oftentimes faster than the people did. So our seeds are meant to be traded and meant to be exchanged and meant to be cared for and loved as our relatives. So if I come across those, in, those people who are, are non-Indigenous but are in a position to be able to care for our seeds, then I do share my seeds with them. So that's something that, that I have done in the past and um, but if somebody, you know, I've been on different like presentations or conferences and somebody uh, who I don't know will just say, hey, how do I get my hands on some of those seeds? Like it doesn't work quite like that. I'm not just That's going right. to, you know, put my seeds in an envelope and ship them off to you. I don't know who you are. I don't mm. you know. So in some cases, I'll recommend them to a different maybe a commercial seed company that does have some of our seeds and say you can contact them and you, you all work it out. But as far as like the, the idea of the etiquette itself and, and that comes into play because we just don't know a lot of this stuff and there's nothing wrong with not knowing because so much of that information has been taken away from us. So it's important to share this information in a good way to not shame people for not knowing. So, for example, we've had some of our relatives come over and see our, you know, our abundance of corn. and says, oh, I'll take some corn. Like, oh, you will. <laughs> it's like, do you have any idea how much work goes into this? And, and yes, we'll, we're willing to share our corn, but it's not um, something that everybody always understands because they'll go to the grocery store and see a can of corn for 69 cents like well that's a whole different ball game that's (laughs) not the same thing so there's the question too about the the value that goes into you know getting access to the land having access to the seeds caring for those seeds planting them caring for them through their whole entire life cycle helping them you know make sure that they're dry and sufficient labeling them appropriately keeping their stories with them And then you finally get to the point where you can share them with somebody. So there's a whole lot of work that has gone into them. So it's not something that you just kind of, oh, give me some. And because, you know, it doesn't look like a whole lot because like a bag of kidney beans, you can buy a a a pound of kidney beans for less than a dollar at the grocery store too. But it's just not the same thing. And people don't always understand. And it's not always their fault. But we're in a position now to be able to help people understand that it's more than just something that you can purchase or something that people should freely give to you just because you want it. So it's about understanding the value and the responsibilities of those seeds and what has all gone into being able to have access to be able to to share those seeds with people. So we've done things like trade for for stuff, and if somebody, like a jar of jam or jelly or something, a token to recognize the important job those seeds have. But I have had situations where somebody said, they genuinely don't have anything to trade. And I said, okay, can you make a commitment to try to grow these out to the best of your ability and then share those seeds with somebody else? Just to understand that that seed is really valuable and important. So I think there's all of those things to consider when, when we're we're taking care of our seeds and we're considering who to share them with and under what circumstances we'll share them.
1: Mm, beautifully put. Thank you so much, Becky. That was so articulate. I really appreciate your thoughtfulness and profound commitment and protection to the seeds and yet your generosity. But knowing, again, this is not, you know kids play right it's not just a flippant um thing to do that these seeds have to be taken very seriously with great care and great respect Yeah, you know, honoring those really those original treaties and agreements and instructions so chi for that We'll have a wonderful event today. That sounds really fun. And someday we'd love to host you out at Heron Shadow, which is our um, farm in Northern California and Coast Miwok Territory, um, where we're growing varieties of three sisters and really intertribally, many different, mainly beans also, and some squashes and different corn varieties. So
0: Excellent. I would love to come check it out. Yes.
1: And if I get to Wisconsin, I'll be looking you up in your farm.
0: Definitely, we love to have people come and check out the gardens. All right, have a good day. Onagiwa. All right, gigawabamin. Bye.